If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Grass. And I am Andres Jimenez. Join us as we travel on common flight paths with our guests gaining insight and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. On this episode, we speak with Julian Victor, a wildlife filmmaker from Toronto who has worked on projects for National Geographic, as well as with legendary wildlife filmmakers Derek and Beverly Joubert. He was one of the presenters for the first ever Blackbirders Week in 2020 and currently creates nature segments for Breakfast Television, one of Canada's most popular TV shows. We explore the risks of presenting pristine images of nature and birds and the importance of letting humans creep into bird images and documentaries. We've been stuck at home during the pandemic. And that means a lot of us has been have been spending time on Netflix and many documentaries have come out. And for those of us that like to be in nature, documentaries have been a bit of an oasis in the middle of lockdowns. We're so we we're always yearning to go. Let's go to like, you know, to like Madagascar, or go to the Amazon or go to the or the Serengeti to see all these animals. But what was interesting for me, I learned, is that you could just go in your backyard and there's, like, the same life and death dramas per, per, play there. And the same, like, you have, like, unexpected uh, birds and other animals that you, autom- you, if you look enough, that you'll notice. And, yeah, that's one thing I've really kind of switched gears and focused on. And I've been actually, it's been really fascinating to see what I've, what has happened, especially in the last year, especially with wildlife, especially and here in the city of Toronto, too. That's very cool. Tell us a little bit about you and um, of the wild stories you have participated in as a filmmaker and photographer. I've done like wildlife filmmaking for the last seven, eight years or so, but it's kind of now starting to kind of take off, take off a bit more. And I'm finally starting to see the the fruits of my labor for so many years. So, which is nice. Uh, I first started as a kid. Um, I was, I got, I, when I was five years old, I watched, uh, I used to watch like, I had like my whole weekend lineup of nature docs lined up. I'd watch TVO one day, National Geographic the next, Discovery Channel one. And, uh, when I was five years old, I watched this one documentary uh, called Zebra's Patterns in the Grass, and it showed the zebra migration in Botswana, which was done by Derek and Beverly Joubert, who are like National Geographic royalty. And that is what kind of got me hooked into wildlife. I'd go to the library and just read about wildlife and nature for as long as I can. There was a ravine down where I used to live behind like a section of apartments. And they used to be like, you know, you'd go down there, you see the ducks and you see the birds and everything like that. I actually wanted to be a zoologist initially. And then I didn't have the grades to do it because, you know, in high school, you kind of slack off and you hang out with the people who don't kind of want to do like who kind of want to just chill and whatever. So I got roped into that. But then when I got I when I got out of high school, I went to I said, what's the best way to 
get into it. And it's like, well, I could try uh, filmmaking. So I actually took, went to film school at the Toronto Film School. And I was the only person who, out of everybody, everyone was like, oh, you're, you're, I want to be the next Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola. And I was like, well, I want to make National Geographic docs. So they're like, oh, okay. It wasn't until after that, that I kind of like, did like a couple odd jobs doing filmmaking and and I uh, doing videography at events and weddings and you know music videos but then I actually worked at a company and then my boss at the time he's like well what do you want to do and I was like well I want to get into like nature docs like National Geographic and he actually he directed me to somebody who worked for Nat Geo and I spoke to them and then he connected me to another uh producer who was in by chance working actually was a line producer on the zebra doc that I watched as a kid. And then I spoke to her about it. And then they said, by chance, they were shooting a um, a, a documentary on urban wildlife and they were doing raccoons in Toronto because, you know, Toronto raccoons are like prolific and they're famous around the world as we're, they're everywhere. So I got a chance to go out there and film, uh, film raccoons out there and, Sorry, film raccoons here, and it was, and that kind of was my foot in the door. That's that's a hell of a ride. That's an amazing story from living next to a ravine, liking nature, to having a boss that connected you with Nat Geo. Then you went to film raccoons of all the creatures that people do not like in Toronto. Raccoons are like top five. I went down and networked at film festivals in the states. And then I actually got a chance to meet Derek and Beverly Joubert, who again did the documentary oh on Zebras. Oh my God. And then you got to I, meet your heroes. Yeah. And I got to meet my heroes and they, I met them. And I also, not only that, I got an opportunity to actually go to Africa and intern for them. Wow. And that, and now an intern for them and go to South Africa and Botswana for four, sorry, for six weeks. And I literally was the best time of my life. It's like I saw all the animals that I wanted to see. I saw all the African predators, including like the African wild dogs, which are like super rare. And I saw them hunting and I saw them at their den with their puppies. I actually did a project two years ago on um, the Lion King and like what happened with the Lion King and lions in the last 24 years with their declining in their population. And they actually were part of my piece that I did. So it's such a full circle moment having that happen. So yeah, that's what that was so far. To connect with your heroes, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, it's crazy. I, that's why every time I see raccoons around, I'm like, you guys are my big break. I'll forever love them. (laughs) That's so good. The raccoons are your big break. Yeah. Yeah, I love the contrast of that, you know, like just pursuing wildlife in an urban environment. It's so interesting. So do you have like, um, is there like a species that you've seen in the urban environment that was a real highlight for you or or one that was maybe hard to track down? Uh, A couple. There's a couple. Where do I even start? So many of them (laughs) are hard. Um, I will say the one species that I, one bird that I actually is one of my favorite birds and it gets a lot of misconception. I really like double crested cormorants. And people do not like them, but I love them. I think they're great. I think they're great. Why so, do you love I, them? Because I just find they're misunderstood, and but they're just so cool. I've filmed them like a few 
years ago and uh i just see them how they like go and they dive for fish and how fast they are and then they like you know they have to like dry their they they have to dry their feathers so they have to like go on the rocks and just kind of flutter them around and but you you see them dive underwater and come up with like big catfish and stuff and whatnot and yeah i think because i filmed them so much i grew to like them so they just was like and they just and i just love the fact that they're so the colony that's at Toronto, the Tom at Tommy Thompson Park. I just love seeing the backdrop of the CN Tower, and you just have thousands of them just fly. It's such that is the to me the definition of urban wildlife. It's like a huge colony of birds, and you see like such an urban city of Toronto. I love it. I love seeing that backdrop. It's just great. One of the hardest birds to find was definitely um, bald eagles. It really was really uh, gave me a tough time for Toronto. One of the good places to see them is kind of around the Humber Bay High Park area. And you tend to see them more so in the winter, fall, late fall, winter between like November to like February. But they're more, they're a lot more commonly seen in like November, December. So I went there and filmed, I tried to film and I actually had it mapped out. I knew the tree they were, they landed on and I saw them and I was like, okay, I got this. This is great. And then I'm like walking around the park aimlessly and all I see is this dark, like the best things to do is hang out with like mallard ducks because the second the bald eagle shows up, they start freaking out. So I'm like with them, with the mallard ducks for a while and suddenly they just start freaking and I look up and I'm like, oh, there's the bald eagle. Okay, great. We're ready. And then the thing is they just, they just don't stay in the tree for long enough. So before you can even establish a shot or anything, they're gone. gone. And that used to be fun. That was so frustrating. And then one day I literally went out one morning and I said, okay, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get this. And then the bald eagle showed up at eight o'clock and I stayed in that area waiting for that thing for seven hours and it didn't show up. And, and this was in the winter and this was minus 13. And I literally waited for seven hours and I'm like, Okay, this is not, this is, this thing is not coming. <laughs> and then, uh, I just kind of like in the, in the meantime, I like, I like filmed some like barn swallows. I had a coyote like kind of stalk me in the thicket and he was just kind of watching me at one point and but it was fine. But the most hilarious moment was I was walking as I was finally packed everything up. I said, okay, pack everything up. I'm done. I walked towards, I called the Uber and I wanted to go. As I'm going to put all of my equipment into the Uber, the eagle here comes. comes the ball, the eagle, and then not only comes, but sits in a, in a tree directly across from me and decides to perch. And I'm just like, wow, you're really doing this as I'm leaving. I'm like, this is great. And I was so, I was like, I cussed explicit. I was going there. I was just so like, yeah, that was a tough. I was, I was so upset. I was so annoyed. But I'm like, that's nature for. I literally said, mother. I did say like, pardon me, like language or whatever. But I was like, I literally said, mother nature, you truly are a. Bitch. I'm sorry. I was so mad. I was so mad. I was like, and then I just walked and I just got into the Uber and I just watched it and I'm like, oh. Five minutes later, and the thing is still in there. And I'm like, the last time it was there, it was literally in the tree when I saw it for two, for like less than two minutes, and then it took off. So I'm like, ah, oh, but wildlife and birds, you can never predict. So you just always have to like go as much as you can. So, Julian, why is it that you seek to see and film nature in urban environments? Um, I seek 
to film nature and urban environments because I like the con- I like the contrast. I like the idea of you know because that the reality is sometimes too is like we have to understand that like what filmmaking like we have, we've kind of seen this kind of idea that you know wildlife and from what we've seen in like the BBC and National Geographic and all these films, it's like you know you have this picturesque nature and it's pristine and it's remote, but the reality is like a lot of wildlife flourish in urban settings and they have to learn how to adapt and have like a sense of almost heart, like a harmony with like harmony with people. And I just love seeing the contrast of how, and like how these birds or mammals or whatever can adapt to urban environments. And you'll actually, people are very surprised when they see like these type of species adapting in such busy areas. It's like, you can have like a family of foxes that, live underneath an overpass, which I've seen in Toronto, under a busy overpass, but they're right at home. It shows their adaptability and how they can survive in like these urban environments. And I just love that. Totally. That's such an important thing for us all to acknowledge and appreciate. Um, So I'm wondering, did you see that kind of uh, human and wildlife uh, interaction in Africa? Or was it was it quite wild? You know, like, when I see footage from Africa, it's always just the wildlife and just the sceneries. But but was it similar to an urban environment in some places? Um, well, the areas that I went to, well, it was mostly primarily in Botswana. So when I was in South Africa, I was in Johannesburg. So there was no wildlife there pretty much. But uh, when I went to Botswana, what's interesting is, you know, you have... Botswana has a very low population, which is like 2 million people. For Africa, that's very, like, low. So, and that's also because of the Kalahari Desert. So, the fact that in when the northern expanse where I was is, like, the Okavango Delta, that's where the area is for, like, prime wildlife viewing, for sure, in Botswana and probably all of Africa. Outside of the protected areas, there's a lot of, like, villages and small towns, and the one interaction, the one, there are interactions with wildlife and that is Botswana has the highest population of elephants in, and then any, Af- any African country. I think there's about 125,000 elephants in Northern Botswana alone. And when you go in, when you're out there in Botswana, they're literally elephants are like squirrels. They're everywhere. And you know, you, you're driving from village to village and you're like, oh, there's an elephant. Oh, there's another elephant. <laughs> and you're just like, and it's like, and then the people have to like deal, they have to deal with that. Or then like when they see the elephant, whenever they try to raid the crops, the the villagers kind of like beat, beat the sound of a drum to drive them, they drive them away. So they do have like the elephants, they have their conflict with, uh, let's say conflict, but they have to interact with animals it's not as we do, but on a much bigger scale. So it makes me yeah. think of um, like really rural and northern communities in Canada, and having bears be just part of the day to day life. Of you know, we have to treat our garbage a certain way. We have to be careful in certain areas. Exactly, um, just those yeah. kinds of precautions. Yeah. Huh. Both of you have been in Africa. I haven't, and I hope you're not going to start bragging. Any of you. Um, I was about to, but Julian, you kind of <laughs> brag when you say that when you said that elephants were like squirrels, but I'm going to give you a pass on that one. 
It, I'm just calling it how it was. They were everywhere. That was the. F- that was literally the first animal when we were flying in the plane. I'm uh, sorry. No, I couldn't be the first. It was a house sparrow for me in Toronto. Yeah, uh, yeah. Going the back first, to Africa. Yeah. When you see documentaries in Africa, you see this wildebeest and there's nothing around them. Or you see the pyramids and there's nothing around them like they were isolated in the desert. But I am wondering if behind the scenes, what you see is like 30 different safari cars on top of the animals or around them. How was the experience for both of you? Um, for me, okay, so for myself, I went in Botswana. I was in kind of a more private kind of concession area. So there wasn't that much safari. There was the only time I may have seen maybe one or two extra safari vehicles. That was it. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't it wasn't that bad when I went out there and so so it's you're kind of easy to it's kind of so you could still have that kind of sense of uh, remote feeling because you see like one or two vehicles and okay, that's it. Never. It's com- compared to like if you go to the Serengeti and then you see like the one of the things that I really want to do in life, my bucket list in life where I know I will cry like a baby if I see is I want to see the wildebeest cross the Mara River and, you know, evade like the the monster crocodiles that lurk after them but when you see the videos i've seen all those videos on youtube where you know there's like tons of safari trucks and i i sometimes feel like oh god that would so annoy me <laughs> like that would absolutely annoy me though a little bit but yeah it's like with with filmmakers sometimes you have to like from what i've seen with a lot of the filmmakers that shoot in those areas you kind of have to get them out of the frame Wow, get them out of the frame. I think that's what we're exploring today. Andrea, what was your experience? Um, I was in a national park in South Africa, uh, in South Africa, and it was it was more of a beach coastal environment. So although it was a protected area, it it had a lot of birds and uh, monkeys and that that kind of species around Um, much, much less of the big wildlife. And we did go to Addo Elephant Park, which is a big national park, a huge, huge amount of elephants in it. But it was quite, it was funky. It was totally opposite of what I would would have expected. We were able to drive our own rental car through the park, uh, Mm. just like a self-tour and look for animals as we went. And we got like a a sheet, you know, try to find all these different species in the park, kind of like an I spy game almost. And it, it was really cool in the sense that it felt like we were exploring for ourselves. You could also book safari tours where you'd go out with a guide and they'd try to find certain species. But mm. the self-exploration was a lot of fun. But there were a ton of vehicles. And the one thing that I noticed and was very aware of was that the elephants would come very, very close to your car. And at times, I think you were at risk of having like an elephant sit on the car uh, oh, and wow. that was just that was bizarre to me to see that kind of I think the elephants were very comfortable with the people and the people were almost maybe too comfortable with the elephants. Uh, mm. and it, it was bizarre seeing that kind of that kind of interaction. We will be right back. The Warblers is supported by Feather Friendly. Birds can't see glass and millions die each year because of window collisions. You can save dozens of birds by treating your windows with Feather Friendly's do-it-yourself kit 
or their commercial solution for large projects. The markers are easy to apply and they work. You can also double your impact by using the code BIRDSCANADA and Feather Friendly will make a donation to support bird conservation. Keep birds singing, treat your windows with Feather Friendly. Visit featherfriendly.com. I want to step back for a minute to documentaries again before we talk about Canada. I was wondering, what do you think happens when we leave humans outside the picture? Let's think about the towns and local people that support the conservation of places and species. What happens when you leave them out of the frame, out of the picture, particularly because I've I've seen many photographers, painters, filmmakers that actively decide not to include human elements on their pictures. Sometimes it's kind of like, in some ways, you kind of just want to capture just the animal there. And you kind of like, it's a story. But then if you kind of showcase other shots of people interacting with them, because it's really kind of like, you know, you want to take, you want to get that photo and Let's be honest, like you want to get that really picturesque photo and you could submit it and maybe someone on Instagram might see it and like it or like Canadian Geographic or National Geographic and they might maybe put it on their page, like they put it on their page and that could bring, draw attention to you as a photographer or filmmaker or whatnot. So in that sense, but then sometimes people just want to get the interactions with human be- with human beings, that also makes for dynamic photos as well. So I think it's kind of what people's styles are, I guess. So, you know, I mean, I saw, a de- I was in a cemetery filming uh, the rutting season of white-tailed deer in Toronto, which is like the best place to actually see deer. It's great. It's, it's, it's awesome. So uh, it is great. And they just run up and you see like big, you see big like trophy bucks in the cemetery and you're like oh my god this is in toronto this is great and you just see them with their antlers and everything and stuff but um the thing is though the one shot that i that really stuck out to me was like this the buck was like like eating shrubs off of a tree and thrashing its horns and then in the foreground this nun walked by and she was having a mask she wore a mask on and she just kind of walked past casually in the foreground and then he stopped and looked at her and he just went for like a split second and just went back to doing what he's doing and i said oh that was i wasn't expecting to see that but that was awesome so that was great because it basically showed like okay there's humans in harmony like you have like a big animal like because that's a hefty 100 to 200 pounds 150 to 200 pound animal and then you see this like woman just walk by with not a care in the world and the deer's just right there and he's not paying your mind she's not paying your mind and it's just, it was that was nice from 1970s north america has lost one in four birds but i am wondering do you think that the current natural stories and documentaries and images reflect that loss or could be could we be tricked in a false sense of security by seeing so many images of so many birds? Uh, yes, because I think, it, like, sorry, when you say that, you say you mean, like, when you see the image of, like, these picturesque moments of birds, so you think that there's so many, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah, this is, this is what I'm thinking, that sometimes we see a lot of documentaries that make it easy to see a very rare bird or that show a lot of nature when it actually can take you three weeks to see that species or more. Uh, yeah, that's true. Because like when it comes to filming, like you have, like when it comes to filming those, um, uh, a lot of times 
it's it can take a long time to film them and then they piece it when they piece, like especially with filmmaking they piece it together and it looks like you get this incredible behavior and you're like oh my god like they're just diving in the water grabbing fish or whatever but then when you actually go out to find it it takes forever and you have to take it takes forever to find it like you know i went to go film turkey vultures at uh that perched on a building in um toronto and it took me six days just to find them and then after and it like the the piece that i made is a two and a half minute i think a two minute piece that took me six weeks to shoot wow some of these companies like some of these productions like at bbc though they paint this kind of picture that there's so many so like you might see planet earth and whatnot and you're like oh my god wow and they've gotten under fire because of that where it's like you're kind of painting this photo. You're kind of not having, you know, conservation aspects of it. You're just showing them, you know, and they all look, they look like numbers, but they could just like, there could be maybe just 200. The filmmakers might've just been waiting for like two, three days to get a shot of the 200. And that's the only time you actually see them together. But then it makes it look as if, oh, wow, they're just everywhere. So yeah, that is, it does happen. Yeah, it makes me think um, like even amateur photographers could help spread the message when you you know you take a photo of a bird that's quite rare in Ontario, for example, and then just when you're sharing that photo, remind people that this is actually a really rare species here, or this one's in danger. Just tossing in those little tidbits, and when someone's drawn to your stunning photo, they're also going to learn a little bit about that species. Yeah, you see, but then also too sometimes. I guess there's that other, that catch-22 of you also don't want to always give the location of to where the birds are either. Because oh, then absolutely. you might, then then you don't want to attract all the throngs, especially if it's a rare bird. You don't want to attract all the throngs of photographers that some of them are not, that do not properly, that don't use proper etiquette to film them, that will do whatever they can so they could post it on Instagram and get attention. So I've heard like horror stories of like some of these photographers and I'm just like, oh my God. So, yeah. That's very important. We need to be, we need to reciprocate birds and the gift they give us by giving them room and being responsible. Um, yeah. The health of a bird is going to be always more important than how many likes they get on Instagram. Yeah. But especially like, especially if birds are like nesting, you know, especially if the birds are like, uh, uh, look. Like, uh like especially for like especially their nesting so like there was in in um in in high park there was like uh they had great horn owls that were nesting for like for a long and now and you know you go there and i was like well where's the spot and i asked like i was curious like oh where's the spot and then it's like oh just follow all the photographers the second you look down you're like there's like six photographers around the at looking up at the nest they're like and then you almost kind of feel bad. You're like, I don't want to film here anymore. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to film here anymore. It's yeah, like, passing on certain photos yeah. is important too. Yeah, you're just like, mm, this seems a little invasive and you don't want to distress the animals and all of that. Yeah, so. We've got a good question. Uh, pick your brain about this one. So the State of Canada's Birds is a report that was recently released. Birds Canada collaborated on it. It suggests that there's three groups of birds that are doing particularly poorly, some of them losing up to 87% of their populations. Um, these groups are not film superstars. So the aerial insectivores like chimney swifts, chimney swifts, 
grassland birds and also shorebirds. So they're, they're often kind of overlooked by, by photographers and filmers. So what's the role that filmmaking, photography, and other artistic mediums could play to support the recovery of those declining species? People always want to know, like, well, why the hell should I care? Or how can I help? Just kind of, again, kind of find a good story to kind of get people interested. Because once you have them, they'll be invested. So I think with those three birds, especially when they're not like, especially it's true, with, with certain animals, they're like, yeah, okay, these animals, are, but they're not like, you know, but you have, you have to, as a, as a talented photographer, filmmaker, you have to make them, in, you, you can't, your talent has to make them kind of stand out. So that's on you, that's like on you, and then you just have it in a way where you kind of present it so that people would then be like, okay, this is serious. How do I, how do I, how do I help them and what can be done? There, I don't think there's really any boring animal on Earth except maybe cockroaches. You just have to kind of find a creative way of bringing that to life so that people can care. Julian, let's explore the Toronto kid going to Africa, meeting his idols and filmmaking there for six weeks to explore how photography often focuses that thing you mentioned that some of the documentaries focus too much on the wild and not enough on the human impact in wildlife. What do you think about, do you think there is currently a good balance or that something needs to be addressed? Um, interesting. Cause I've seen so many of sat through some of these panel discussions at festivals. It's changing now. I think they're really starting to realize that in order for you to get everybody on to get people on board with conservation, you have to show everybody. And I think for the longest time that you used to have these picturesque like areas, but you would never show the people surrounding them. And then on top of that, a lot of these um, productions would not distribute the films to the actual countries that they're filming it. So we might see elephants or lions or whatever, or, or elephants in like their their settings but they we like they the the in the, the those in the communities won't see that so they'll still view an elephant or a lion that either debates their crops or eats their livestock or something like that as verm as vermin and they'll still continue to like defend themselves and like try and eliminate them and we on the western world are like oh no how could they do that they're so amazing but yet it's not getting distributed across there's not they're not distributing the films to them so that people could see them in the wonder that we do but i think it's changing now that now you need more representation where people in these countries and people from these communities are now wanting to make their own doc their own films for their own their people and i think companies like nat geo and bbc are now starting to be like okay we need to kind of you can't just have you know some David Attenborough type of guy come into, you know, into Kenya and just start talking about you have to have someone who's there and then and not just have a person who's on camera, but have, you know, people who are also filming, who are also editing, who are also producing. And I think that has actually changed now with COVID. It kind of did a halt. COVID kind of was a bit of a blessing in a way that now those companies couldn't really send their crews to those locations. So they had to hire those people there. So now it's kind of shifting a little bit. It's shifting a little bit now. Everybody can now see representations themselves and encourage them to 
get into conservation because it is for everybody, but for so long, it was only seen like it's for one group of people. I think you're absolutely spot on there. Like the wildlife documentaries have always had this trope of, you know, there's beautiful footage and then a stuffy old white man from a foreign country speaking Mm -hmm. about the wildlife. Um, But I don't, yeah, like I'd way rather hear from the locals who live and interact with those species, you know, speak to a wildlife ranger who's out there every day in the parks and they know, you know, they know the elephants, for example, as individuals and they know the stories and their habits. And I think that's much more compelling um, and also absolutely helps the locals to see themselves in those stories and be a part of it. It's yeah. Like I, I couldn't agree with you more. When I was there in Botswana and I was there, like I was with the, I was with the, the kid, I was with the kids and stuff and they grab it. Cause it's like, you know, you see like another black guy, they probably don't see. And like, you know, outside and obviously like I look a little bit <laughs> different around them, but they're still like, you know, but they like gravitated to me and they see me filming and whatnot. And I'm like interacting with them. And I guess they, and then one kid in particular, like I had to run to the bathroom and then, I gave him the camera to hold and like come back and he's like it was I he had it on a monopod and he had the camera and he's like holding it like you know he's a steady cam like and he's going and I looked at it I'm like okay you seem to like are pretty good at holding that and you're seeing what he's doing and I said to like the instructors and stuff like okay you see that you see him you need to nurture that like you have to nurture that like that is important because I just handed it to him and he just looked like he's a natural just holding the camera. I'm like, and I think they just need the opportunity. And unfortunately, they don't get it that much. And it makes me think about um, what's happening with Black Birders Week. Uh, And it's a relatively new initiative. And and I, I can't help but think that it's kind of doing the same thing, right? Encouraging people of color to get out and share their stories and, and really be a part of it. And push aside, you know, again, that stuffy old white man birder image um birders don't have to be that right like could you could you tell us a bit more about black birders week uh so black birders week i this is my like yeah second year being a part of it and i i initially joined it because i was in the the black stem group last year and then this was it kind of was created out of what the incident that happened with christian cooper in central park so they're like, well, what do we do? We have to like, because then we find out they're like, he's a birder. So he was watching birds. That's what happened. And then that's how it kind of came out to came to be. And then it kind of blossomed. And, you know, <laughs> you just have like, I was shocked that there are so many other black people that were into birds and wildlife. I was like, I've never seen this many. I thought I was the only one. And you just like talking and there's like, and in the past year, there's so many like new friendships that I've formed with people and now you could kind of nerd out and we could share our experiences and 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 talk and talk with people and it's just it's such a great thing so to see it happen again and have seen just the now all these other places like Nat Geo and and all these other like conservation initiatives are now including black birders week as a thing to look out for and watch it's actually really nice to see that but it's just so great like a year ago i would have been like I'm like the only black guy. I don't see anybody that looks like myself. And now I'm like, oh, there's so many people. And then you just meet everybody. And it's just so great to kind of have that, have that there. And you could kind of nerd out and talk about stuff that I have to hold back when I talk to like my, my regular friends. So I'm just like, yeah, you see that 
bird over there? That's a hawk. Whereas if with them, I could be like, okay, so do you see that juvenile hawk? Do you see the plumage? So what do you think of that? So it's just like, oh, what's wrong with like, geez, that's abnormal coloring. What do you think? You know what I mean? So that's, it's, it's nice. It's really, it's really good. And it's, and I, I think it's only going to get bigger. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box. Do you have any advice for young people pursuing wildlife filmmaking? Uh, yeah, I guess my biggest advice is like nowadays it's actually pretty. The gear is very accessible now. You could shoot on anything. You could shoot on your phone. The advice I would say that like um, to young filmmakers is just go out and just shoot. Find a story that you like. Find a story that you like. A conservation story that you like. And go out there and like just practice and go out there and practice. If you like someone, especially with social media, go find someone that you really look up to and like. Sh- like shoot them a DM, talk about it, and see what happens. Like sh- shoot them a DM and ask them questions and just kind of keep in touch. That's fantastic. That's a lot of really good advice. Put yourself out there, kind of pursue the wildlife that you have, and and seek things that make you stand out. That's that's all really helpful. Where can people follow you and find out about upcoming projects? My website, julianvictor.com. And also, I'm very frequently on, I also Instagram as well, which is at jv underscore wild. And you can see some of the photos and some of the, I incorporate some of the stuff I've done at at, at City TV as well. And those are the main two. Everything else, I people tell me to join TikTok, but I'm like, I don't get it. But okay, I'm like, maybe <laughs> not, you know. But uh, Julian, thanks for warbling with us today. Um, this is going to be a great episode. Awesome. No problem. It was, it was a pleasure to warble with you guys as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great chatting with you. I've loved learning so much more about this topic. The Warblers is produced by Andres Jimenez, Jody Allaire, Ruth Friendship Keller, Andrea Gress, and Kate Dolgleish. This episode was edited and engineered by Greg McLaughlin, with theme music by Jose Mora and artwork by Alexander Nichol. Until next time, keep birding. <laughs>